For the past few years now, I've been teaching a class like this in different places in different areas. It's, it's a class on biblical gender and sexuality. We've given it the title Sex and Gender in the Image of God because I think that's one of the core ideas we need to wrap our head around. More on that in just a minute. Um, if you look over the flyer, you'll get the information. It'll be on Wednesday nights, 7 o'clock. Um, and then there's also a schedule on the back. Now, there's probably particular topics there that you'd like to be here for, but I would really encourage you, if at all possible, to make it for the whole thing. Um, the, the class is comprehensive in nature, and the first half will be laying a foundation. Um, we'll be covering what I like to call the why of sex and gender. It's only after that that we can address the how, the what's, uh, those types of things, which we'll do in the second half of the class. Um, but obviously, these issues are, uh, are very primary. They're very important in our day and age. Um, it's a major clashing point, not just outside the church, but inside the church. Um, but this issue has become more important to me for a greater reason, and that's because it, it seems to me, after much study, that it's also primary to a Christian understanding of humanity and God himself. And so, um, so here's the deal. Um, first off, come, come to the classes, invite your friends, all are welcome. We'll do a Q&A every night, uh, and so we'll really, we'll really do this right. We'll get deep and talk things uh, through. Um, but second, this morning, what I want to do basically is give you a little bit of a preview. In fact, uh, this morning's sermon is going to be just our first lecture on our first Wednesday night, except I'm going to try and do it in 40 minutes. Uh, it's going to be too much. This is bad preaching, but good pastoring, I promise you. Um, but I have a goal in mind this morning, and it comes back to that idea of the why, okay? Uh, the thing is, for us to have a biblical understanding of sexuality and gender, it's not enough to take every reference to issues of sexuality and the gender in the Bible and then just dump them out on the carpet and say, okay, this is a biblical viewpoint. That's like having a box full of Legos without the instructions, right? We may have all the pieces. That doesn't mean we know how to assemble them. And the most important part here is the why, uh, because I don't think many of us have fully thought through uh, what philosophers would call the moral logic of a Christian sexual ethic. We know the rules, we understand the boundaries, but why? Because God said so, or because it's in the Bible, is as deep as some of us can get. But we need to understand uh, two things. One, uh, that we are beauty-oriented human beings, which means when we understand why things are and when we think something is worth aspiring to, that energizes our following. And two... Our world right now is living out a view of sexuality and gender that is self-destructive, that is idealized as one thing and experienced on the complete end of the spectrum. If the church can once again communicate a beautiful view of sexuality and gender, we will be a light and not a darkness on these issues. We will be a hope and not a despair on these issues. Uh, we will be a help uh, to the nation, and as we will see this morning, that why, uh, that instruction manual for the Legos, it's all bound up in understanding the whole story that the Bible tells, okay? And before we turn to our passage, let me just, uh, let me just tell you a story. So I remember hearing a story about a woman, 
and she had grown up eating her mother's pot roast, and she was excited because now that she was married and had her own household, her mother was coming for dinner, and she was going to make mom's pot roast, and she was going to do it right. So she had the recipe right there, and she was cooking it, and her husband was kind of uh, hanging around the kitchen, and he noticed strangely at one point that she took the pot roast and cut the ends of it and threw the ends away and then cooked the pot roast. And he said, well, why do you do that? And she said, well, that's just what mom always did. And so it went on, and the meal came, and the mom's sitting there, and she said, honey, you did a great job. That was clearly my pot roast. But I have a question. What happened to the ends of the pot roast? And she said, Mom, you always kept the ends off the pot roast. And she said, yeah, because my pan was too small. (laughs) Right? Why matters. Okay? Now, the best way for us to get at this this morning, again, is to put it in the context of the story the Bible tells. And for maybe 150 years, the church has used a four-part lens to this story to help us navigate through these things. We think of the story the Bible tells as beginning with creation, And then we have this category called the fall, and then we have redemption, and then finally consummation, okay? Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. And they're very simple ideas. Creation, God made the world and it was good. Fall, something happened to the world, so things are not as they were supposed to be. Sin, rebellion, death, the curse, everything fits in there. Redemption, God sent a savior in Jesus Christ to set right what went wrong in the fall, And consummation, Jesus will return and finish what he started and all things will be as they should be, okay? Now, these are the same categories you'd encounter in any introductory book on understanding the Bible. They really are. But more importantly to me, this is the lens that Jesus Christ himself uses, not just to understand all of life, but also, as we'll see this morning, to understand sexuality, What we're going to do is just look at passages where Jesus talks about marriage in the Gospel of Matthew and draw out this full totality of understanding, okay? And so not only does this have the advantage of being Jesus' way of thinking through these things, but also just looking at Matthew's presentation of Jesus' way of thinking these things, which is a good way to handle the Bible, okay? You don't have one book that looks like a dictionary and is full of entries. You have 66 books. And so biblical theology always begins with the one and then overflows into the others. That's what we're going to do this morning. Now, one last thing. This morning we're not going to talk about marriage. That is just the window that gets us behind. We're not asking what does Jesus think about marriage this morning, but how? How does Jesus think about marriage? Okay. So with that in mind, I'd like you to turn to Matthew chapter 19. Now, I have to be honest. We're going to do some significant Bible page turning this morning. I promise wherever we turn, I will read slowly and clearly. Uh, but I would remind you that there's an index at the back in the front of your Bible, and there's no shame in turning there first. But we're going to pick up in Matthew 19. Let's read the passage, pray, and jump right in. Matthew 19, verse 1. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read? 
that he who created them from the beginning and made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would help us to rightly assemble the data this morning. We desire to be biblical because we believe that the Bible speaks with authority and that the rules and the statutes that it lays out are for our good, for our health, that they are life. And so we desire, Lord, that you would this morning guide us through this and that you would begin to build out the framework to help us understand the playing field uh, of sexuality and gender. Finally, Lord, I ask that you would dial into the heart the centrality uh, of these things and what it means to be human and what it means to be humans made in the image of God and therefore who you are and the relationship you desire to have with us. We pray that you would help us with this in Jesus' name. Amen. Excellent. Okay. If this is the case, I'm actually going to move over here. Um, all right. So we need to lay a little bit of groundwork before we can understand what's coming on, uh, happening in this passage. The Pharisees have come to Jesus, and it's important that you recognize here that they are testing Jesus. They're not really interested in his input, his opinion. They're not really looking to him for answers. Instead, they're trying to trap him. And so, as is often the case, a controversial, hot-button topic of the day is chosen. And they have two things in mind here. One is to see if Jesus would foolishly pit himself against Moses. They want to see Jesus as a false teacher, so let's see if he'll say Moses was wrong. Let's see if he'll stand against the scriptures. But second, during Jesus' day, there were two primary camps of understanding lawful divorce, and so at the very least, Jesus is going to side with one or the other and therefore split his influence and his audience. Okay? What's interesting, though, is when Jesus responds, first and foremost, notice there in verse 4, he answered, have you not read? Now this is standard practice for Jesus answering questions, for coming to conclusions for his preaching. Thus saith the Lord, have you not read? What do the scriptures say? These are always the places where his answers begin. Jesus constantly validates the authority of the Old Testament. In fact, earlier in Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, don't think that I came to overthrow the law. I came instead to fulfill it, right? And so he starts with the Bible. What's striking here is he doesn't go to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 24 is the passage that the Pharisees talk back about when he gives his answer. That's when they go, well, then why did Moses permit divorce? But what does Jesus do here? 
he goes to Genesis 1 and 2. He first alludes to Genesis 1 using the language of Genesis 1. He says, have you not read that he who made them male and female? Okay, that's Genesis 1.27. And then he quotes from Genesis 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Okay, now there's a few things that are striking about this. What was the Pharisee's question about? Divorce. What is Jesus' answer about? Marriage. Okay, that's significant. Effectively, what Jesus does in this passage is he says, you cannot understand rightfully divorce unless you rightfully understand marriage. And you cannot rightfully understand marriage unless you go back to the beginning. They're expecting him to go, well, let's have a conversation about how to interpret Deuteronomy 24. And Jesus says, first, we need to talk about Genesis 1 and 2. Listen, this is not just an occasional happening of Jesus where he happens to turn to Genesis instead of Deuteronomy. This is the gut instinct of the biblical authors dealing with sex and gender. When Malachi talks, talks about divorce in Malachi chapter 2, guess where he goes? Genesis chapter 2. When Paul is talking about men who were visiting prostitutes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where does he go? Genesis chapter 2. Later in 1 Corinthians, when he's talking about appropriate dress for men and women when gathered at church, where does he go? Genesis chapter 2. When he talks about appropriate treatment of a man for his wife in the context of marriage, where does he go? Genesis chapter 2. Even in Galatians, where it says there is therefore now uh, no more Jew or Greek Slave or free man, male and female. Have you ever noticed that? Not or. Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female. Why is it male and female? First, he doesn't say man or woman. He says male and female. But by keeping the and in there, he draws our attention to Genesis 1, 27. Okay. Every time... The Bible addresses sexuality. Its instinct is to begin at the beginning. Okay. And so Jesus does that here. He says, have you not read from the beginning? And notice, even when they question him, verse 7, they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? What about Deuteronomy? Notice what he says. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But what? From the beginning, it was not so. Jesus says if we're to understand sexuality, we have to begin at the beginning. Here's the thing, when we do so, when we go back, we find that sex and gender show up surprisingly early in the story of humanity. Let me remind you of what happens in Genesis chapter 1. God creates the world as we know it, and he does it in two phases. On the first three days, he forms the world, okay, so he creates light and separates it from the darkness. He creates sky and separates it from the world. He creates water and separates it from the earth. And then the next three days, in the same order, fill those places. So the sky from day one gets filled with stars, sun, and moon. And then the sea, or excuse me, the, uh, the air uh, from day two gets filled with birds. And then the earth gets filled with people and animals. Okay, this is the format. But what happens is in this format, there's a repeated structure that's exactly the same day after day. God said, let us make. And then there was. And God saw that thing, and it was good, and evening and morning was the day, right? Over and over. That follows every single day until the sixth one. First, animals are created. God said, let there be animals and let them be fruitful and multiply, these types of things. And they were created, and it was good. And then, Genesis 1.27. And God said, let there be man. 
No. And God said, let us make man according to our image and after our likeness. The pattern is suddenly broken. The repetition that we've gotten used to veers off to the other side. It goes differently. In fact, if you were to imagine with me uh, the, the first chapter of Genesis like a play happening on stage, and so there's this disembodied voice, let there be light, and the lights come up, right? And things are appearing on stage. What happens in Genesis 127 isn't projected out at the audience. It's backstage discussion between the performers. Let us make mankind in our image. It's different, isn't it? But what I want you to notice specifically is this is what happens next. So God created human beings in his image. Male and female, he created them. In the image of God, he created them. As soon as there's this conversation, let us make humankind in our image, the next thing we see is gender. And sexuality isn't far behind because the next verse, Genesis 128, says, be fruitful and multiply. They're right there, right at the beginning of what it means to be human. Now, what is this idea of the image of God? For today's purposes, I'll keep it really simple. Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology puts it very simply. I think it's helpful. He says, to be in the image of God means that there is some way that we as human beings are like God and we are called to represent him. That second one's really important. When we say that human beings are created in the image of God, it doesn't just mean God thinks, so we think. It doesn't just mean God has a will, so we have a will, or God creates, so we create. It means that there's something about us that's purpose, that its intention is to show, to reflect, to demonstrate who God is. Okay, an image in the rest of the Old Testament is what? A statue, right? The law says you will have no images, no graven images that you bow down to. But human beings were created to be the image of God. In the ancient world, we find this idea of image of God in other nations, in other languages, in other cultures, and generally it has to do with a representative statue of a king. Okay? Think the book of Daniel. Right? There's this big statue. What does the statue represent? The rule of the king. Okay? In fact, I think we get that even in our modern context, because when a dictator is overthrown in the country, what do they show on the news? His statue's being pulled down. Right? Okay? What I'm suggesting to you this morning is that there is something about human beings in their design and in their purpose that is ultimately fulfilled in showing who God is. Now let's connect that very quickly to sex and gender. Think of all of the preferred titles God uses for himself. Father, husband, we are his children, the church is the bride. What do those terms mean without a world that involves sex and gender? Nothing. They are sexually oriented terms. They are engendered terms. Okay? In other words, what I'm suggesting to you is male and female and the relationships they form and sexuality as a whole and the relationships that come out of that are directly designed as part of this image of God. Listen, for Christians... Uh, an ethic of any type is always a symbolic ethic. It's not pragmatic. It's not we do this because this is the end we're after. It's we do these things because this is who God is. We don't do these things because this is who God is. What is the mantra of the Old Testament for Israel? Be holy because I am holy. 
live this way because it reflects rightly who I am. We are called to be just because God is just. We are called to be uh, uh, for life and against death because God is for life. He's the life giver. He's the life of the universe. We are called to be holy because God is holy. And we are called to a particular type of human relationships because it shows us the relationship that God desires to have with us. Now, here's what's interesting. Genesis 1 lays this out on the table. But Genesis 2 is like taking a microscope and you've got it at a 10 times zoom and you go back over the same slide, but now at a 100 times zoom. Right? Genesis 2 retells the story of the creation of humankind. And so in the beginning, it's let us make humankind male and female. But what do we find in Genesis chapter 2? The creation of a single human. In fact, the creation of a male human named Adam. And again, the pattern from chapter 1 is important. Because what is God's explanation of what he's made over and over every day? And God saw that it, what he had made and it was good. In fact, at the end of Genesis chapter 2, God sees everything that he made and it was very good, right? It gets the final stamp of approval. But here's what ins- what's interesting. God makes a man. He places him in the garden. He gives him a job to do. And then he says, it's not good. He says, that's not good. He says specifically, it's not good that man should be alone. Put that back in the context of the purpose of humanity. Effectively, what God is saying is Adam in and of himself, on his own, cannot fully accomplish imaging me. In fact, that's already our instinct from Genesis 1.27 because it's male and female. And the idea there is not that both men and women image God. It's that men and women collectively image God together. And not just because God has male traits and female traits. That's not the point. It's because God is a relational God. And what he wants to display about himself is relational. And you can't have relationships without other people. But notice what happens next. God says it's not good that man should be alone. And what follows after is what seems like a side story. And it says, so God called all the animals that he had made before Adam, and he named everyone, and whatever Adam named them, that was their name. And you go, wait, I thought we were talking about the fact that it's not good for man to be alone. Why are we talking about animals at all? Understand here, the narrator of Genesis has not gone, oh, you know what, I forgot to tell you about the animals really quickly, and then he just slips it in there. In fact, this is how the story ends. So Adam named every animal, but there was found no one to be a suitable helper for him. God knows Adam is incomplete. Adam doesn't until he looks at the animal kingdom. And what does he see? He sees two things. First, he sees the parody of life, right? Mr. Bear and Mrs. Bear, Mr. Octopus and Mrs. Octopus, okay? And second, among all of them, he doesn't find a suitable helper. A dog may be man's best best friend, but it can't be a suitable helper. It's at this point in the story that God puts Adam to sleep and takes out of his side and creates a woman. And what does Adam respond when he sees her? At last. Finally. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, someone like me. And then, someone different than me. I will call her woman because she was taken out of man. God doesn't give Adam another Adam. He doesn't give Adam another man. He doesn't just need another human. He needs a woman. In fact, just go back to the first command that man and woman are given, be fruitful and multiply. Adam can't do that on his own. Okay. 
And so the creation of woman is the climax of this. It's the fixing of the it is not good that man should be alone that leads to the and God saw all these things and they were very good. Okay. Now, when we talk about this category of creation, like I said, you will find it everywhere when the Bible addresses sex and gender. Okay. But, but there's really three ideas I want to leave you in this category of creation that have to stay in our mind if we're going to assemble things right. First, sex and gender were created by God. Okay. Now, that might not be such a big deal to you today, but in the ancient world, that is novel. Because most of the other religions, most of the other origin myths of where human beings came from, sex and gender are pre-existent realities in the divine community. And the world as we see it is a product of violence and sex. As this God and his consort have intercourse, this is the product of it. But God is not a sexual being. He does not have genitalia. He's not engendered. He does not have a consort. Sex and gender is created. Okay. Now second, like everything else God created, it's good. And this is one that we have a tendency to forget. In fact, there's been many periods in church history where older celibate single men saw sex at best as a necessary evil. Something that we do because kids are okay, but to get there you have to do this kind of gross and semi-offensive thing because it involves bodies, right? It's, and uh, that doesn't fit the story, does it? We see here sex and gender. In fact, sex is part of God's blessing on humanity. Be fruitful and multiply. But there's a third thing we need to understand, and that's that not only is it good or created, and not only is it good, but that it has a design. As I just showed you, sex and gender is woven into the warp and woof of what it means to be human, which means for the Christian, it's woven into the warp, of warp and woof of our purpose as human beings to image God. And finally, it's war woven into the warp and woof of that image because that shows us who God is and the relationship he desires to have with us. It is a central issue. That's why the Bible talks so much about sex and gender. It's not because sexual sins are greater sins. It's because they're more central sins. They deal with our full identity, design, and purpose. But here's the thing about design. I think each one of you have had that experience where you're asked to look for something in another house's kitchen drawer, right? You're at there, hey, can you get me, you know, the, the bottle opener or whatever it is? And you open the drawer, and every one of us has found something in that drawer, and we did not know what it was, right? Just some kitchen implement, but we don't know what it's for, so we don't know what it is right? And here's the thing. Design and identity go hand in hand. We don't know what something is unless we know what it is for. That doesn't mean that we aren't capable as human beings as using things wrongly. Okay. I'll give you another experience that I think you've all had. You've all found a loose screw somewhere and not had a screwdriver handy, and so you grab a knife, right? Maybe you have a pocket knife, and you pull it out, and you turn the screw, and it works, but there's two significant things when you go against the grain of the design. First off, there's a danger inherently, right? There's a reason why screwdrivers are dull and not pointed. It's because they're not sharp and they're stable when you turn them. But when you use a knife, it has a tendency to slip, okay? When we use things against their design, that's always the way it's dangerous, but that's not all. What would happen if you made a habit of using a knife to turn screws? Not only is it dangerous each and every time, but over time, the purpose of the knife, which is to 
puncture things, to cut things, becomes dulled. And it no longer appropriately or properly serves its purpose. It becomes more difficult to achieve what it was made for. That's why design matters. We live in a world today, this is the sexual ethic of our day and age, okay? It begins with desire, and then it's boundaried by consent. What do you want? And then can you find someone who will, in full right mind, agree to that thing? That is our baseline modern Western sexual ethic. My church is two blocks from the headquarters of The Stranger, our local venomous and liberal paper. Dan Savage, who has been the sex columnist there almost as long as I've been alive, uh, and now no longer lives in Seattle, but on the East Coast and has gone full-blown national, okay? He is no longer just the sexual, uh, sexual voice of Seattle, but of all America. He writes articles for the New York Times. There was a TV series that came out called The Real O'Neills last year on him growing up as a gay Catholic. Okay, he is a central figure. He is the voice of our modern moral uh, understanding of sexuality, and I have made a habit of reading his column uh, almost for a decade now. And I'll tell you that ultimately, that's the line he wants to draw. Where is your desires, and is there consent? And he'll use this to parse the yes and no on absolutely everything, but he struggles, even he struggles at the places where that doesn't fit. Okay, and so I won't go into that today, we don't have time, uh, but the problem with this ethic is it's too bare bones. It can't deal with issues of incest. It can't really give us a satisfying uh, response to pedophilia because it just says, well, they're just not old enough. But what about parental consent? Does that handle it? No, of course it doesn't. Okay, here's the thing, though. For us as Christians, we have a completely different paradigm. For us, it begins with design, and it's boundaried by purpose. It was made for something. Does what you're doing with it fit what it's made for? That determines everything. Now, getting back to what Jesus does here, I want you to notice two things. First, verse 4, he answered, back in Matthew 19, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Now, that's fascinating. It's fascinating for two reasons. One, because he's going to quote Genesis 2. That's where the beef is going to be, right? That's the meaty part of what he wants to say. But he starts in chapter 1 and reminds us that God made us male and female. He's talking about divorce, but he goes directly to gender. But more importantly, notice what he says. Have you not heard that he who created him from the beginning made them male and female, verse 5, and said. Who is the speaker in Genesis 2.24? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. According to Jesus, it's God himself. This is important because it means that this statement... Therefore, a man shall leave his mother and father and be joined to his wife is not just a narrator commentary explaining why we do things a certain way. What we have in Adam and Eve being joined together by God in the garden is not merely a happening or one example of many. It is a prototype. God lays out the blueprints and he points to the design and he says, therefore, because it's not good that man should be alone, because male and female are created in the image of God, because it's through both of them that be fruitful and multiply happens, all of those things, therefore a man shall leave his mother and father and be joined to his wife. Listen, one of the worst things that happens in culture on issues of sexuality and gender, and the church is prone to this, is stereotyping. 
Here's what stereotyping is. It's when we take things that are expressed culturally around us and we make those definitive of the identity of the thing. And so what happens is we take how we think of gender and then we read it into the Bible and anything that doesn't fit we ignore and anything that shows it we amplify and say, look, this is biblical. Okay, we've all probably experienced the problem of stereotypes. Let me tell you, the Bible does not include the words masculine and feminine anywhere. You won't find a description for those things, okay? More on that in the class, but more importantly for us, we're not talking about stereotypes here. We're talking about archetypes. We're talking about prototypes, okay? We're not looking at culture, but pre-culture. We're not looking at the way things are as we experience it. We're looking at design in the words of the designer. That's different. So, creation. But here's the thing about creation. At the end of Genesis chapter 2, what is Adam and Eve's relationship described about like? And they were naked and unashamed. Sound familiar? If we add naked and unashamed and sober, I think all of us would say no. Right? What they have in the garden is so different than how we experience life. And this is essential. Because if all we use is creation as a lens to view sex and gender, it will be too idealistic. It will have nothing to do with life because none of us live in the garden. Right? We have to continue the story. Listen. I heard a story once about a man who was traveling through Ireland, just hiking his way through. And he got a little lost, so he wandered into a bar in Cork. And he asked the bartender, excuse me, can you tell me the way to Dublin? And the bartender was kind of rugged and old, and he said, oh, if I were trying to get to Dublin, I wouldn't start from here. <laughs> right? That is the problem of where we live. None of us live in the garden, but we have to start from where we are. That brings us to the fall, and I want to show you very quickly that Jesus has the fall in mind here in Matthew 19. The, the uh, Pharisees go, okay, you say what God has joined together, let no man separate, but Moses permits divorce. And Jesus says, well, it wasn't so in the beginning, but he also explains why Moses. And notice what he says here in Matthew 19. Uh, verse 8, he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. Now, let's lay out some obvious statements here. First, when Moses wrote Deuteronomy 24, did he have these particular Pharisees in mind? Did he go, oh, one day Jesus is going to talk with this group of Pharisees. They're so hard in heart, I need to make an exception right here in Deuteronomy. No, the pronoun there, because of your hardness of heart, is not just Jesus' dialogue partners, is it? It's because of you collective humanity's hardness of hearts. The law for divorce exists because of the fall. There's something wrong internally. In fact, Jesus says it's not what we put into us that makes us unclean, but it's what comes out of the heart that makes us unclean. Your greatest problem, the greatest threat to your goodness, your righteousness, your holiness is not your circumstances. It's not your environment. It's not your friend group. It's your heart. Okay, that's part of the fall. There's something about the choice that Adam and Eve made that broke humanity in a way that we cannot fix it ourselves. That's why Jesus needed to come. But focusing here on the fall, that's not the only place where he touches on the fall. So there's something wrong with human beings. And then more importantly, what happens is Jesus here doubles down. Don't let anyone tell you that Jesus had a looser sexual ethic. 
he doubles down in such a way that his disciples are having a hard time swallowing what he says, right? And so they come to him, uh, verse 10, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. If it's so high stakes, if divorce is so against the grain of what God wants, if holiness is required to rightly represent God uh, and it means this, then maybe we should stay single. And this is a huge statement out of the mouth of a Jewish person who believes that the first command God gives Adam and Eve, the first command in the 613 that they keep, is be fruitful and multiply. Most likely here, the disciples are trying to get Jesus to back off a little. They're good PR. They know this is a hard statement. It's just like John chapter 6. Jesus, do you know because of what you just said, many people are leaving. They go, you didn't really mean that, did you? And he's like, what you just said, it's better to be single. Not everybody can receive it. And then notice what he says. He says, not everyone can receive the saying, but only those to whom it is given, verse 12, for there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God. Again, we find the fall. Okay. A eunuch, in its most small definition, is a person who has been castrated by a king and put into their service. They were despised by the Jews because of the impossibility of fruitful and multiply. In fact, Deuteronomy says that they're not, uh, they're not to enter into the assembly of God's people. And not only does Jesus address them here, but the last one, those who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of kingdom of God, he makes them a paradigm of discipleship, which is ironic. It's pushing, okay? But what I want you to notice here is he gives those three categories of eunuchs. First, those who are born eunuchs, those who are born that way. The Jews had this concept already. They called it a eunuch of the sun because as soon as a child is born, sunlight is enough to say that his fate sexually is different than other people's. Okay. What we're talking about here, we would today call, call intersex okay, or sexual dis development disorders. Jesus says some people are born this way. That is the reality of the fall. Our bodies don't work as they should. Infertility is a great example of this. God's call for human beings is to be fruitful and multiply, but sometimes our bodies don't participate in that anymore, do they? Because they're broken, because they're not as God designed them, okay? Then he refers to those who are made eunuchs by men. These are classic eunuchs, and in that word made, you need to hear tyranny, because it's there. You need to hear oppression. Most eunuchs become eunuchs not by answering an ad in the paper, but by being a prisoner of war. In fact, if you read about Daniel and his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, most likely they're eunuchs. Okay? They're prisoner of war captives from Judah put into the employ of the king. And the issue there is not about sexual promiscuity in the palace. It's about children. Eunuchs were about children. It was so uh, set up so that you could only devote yourself to the king's legacy because you didn't have one for yourself. It was so set up that the king was your only security in your old age because there were no children to take care of you. But it was oppression. And here's the thing. The world that you're living in, you're not just living in a fallen world as a fallen person. You're living in it with other fallen people. And Jesus identifies here that the sins of others can impair, can hinder God's plan for our life. Because we live in a fallen world. Now, we don't have time for this, but we could really unpack this. Romans chapter 3 talks about our fallen nature. And Paul draws from the Old Testament rapid-fire, machine-gun-style quotations from all over the Old Bible. There is none righteous, not a single one. All have gone astray. Each has gone his own way. 
You notice all the language there? It's inclusive, isn't it? All, none, every, each. But in the second half, he says, the venom of asps is under their tongue. Their hands are quick to shed blood. Their feet run to injustice. Right there, he switches to body metaphors, and he basically says, we're fallen head to toe. Everyone's fallen. We're all thoroughly fallen, and this includes your sexuality. There are not sexually fallen people and non-sexually fallen people. These things impact your life. Every one of you. Okay. The other one that I want to point you to is Romans chapter 8, where Paul says that mature Christians grown with all of creation because the world is not as it should be, awaiting the redemption of our bodies. We groan because in us is not as it should be. And again, that's a mark of knowing the truth, not of immaturity. Okay, the fall impacts each and every person. You know what this means? It means that the church above all other communities should understand sexual brokenness with compassion. Because the fall is the hand we were dealt, and we were all dealt that hand. But the problem is, if you just focus on the fall, then two things will happen. First, you'll despair, and then second, you'll compromise. You'll go, well, I, I just am who I am, and that's all that I am, which is not the Bible, it's Popeye. Okay? You'll settle and go, well, this is just the hand that was dealt, and I don't have any other options. But the story doesn't end with the fall, does it? It moves on to redemption. And we don't really find redemption in this passage in Matthew 19, but I want, you to, I want to remind you that Jesus didn't come to teach us a sexual ethic. That this conversation is while Jesus is on the road to his real goal, which is the cross. Okay. And so Jesus came to set things right, and he does this through the cross. And for us as Christians, this means two things. Okay. I mean, honestly, the entire New Testament explains our redemption. That's its purpose. In fact, Jesus says the whole Bible, Genesis to Revelation, if you don't understand in relationship to him, you don't understand it yet. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have life, but they testify of me, he says. Okay, and so in a sense, it's all about redemption, but two quick points. One is identity. In Jesus Christ, we're given a new identity. We can't not turn here. We have to turn here. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You know what's really funny while you're turning? Scott was the first person to ever have me teach in a pulpit. He invited me to teach this church at the old location, and I think I taught for 20 minutes. It's never happened since. <laughs> yeah. First uh, Corinthians chapter 6. This is a vice list. There's eight of them in the New Testament. They're exactly what they sound like. They're a list of bad behaviors. Okay. In fact, just to put a point on it, of those eight lists, all of them but one include sexual sin. More than half of them include it at least twice, and it heads the list in three quarters of them. It's a primary issue. But here, notice what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is what he says in verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Okay, first off, there are sexual sins three times on that list. And second, he's not saying, this is the world outside, don't be like them. He's saying, this is the membership of the church in Corinth. This is who you were. 
what does that imply? This is what you no longer are. Why? Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In Jesus Christ, we're given a new identity, a new starting place. And this isn't just a label. You don't just get to wear Jesus' jersey and so now you look righteous. You get Jesus' nature in the Holy Spirit. An inner man that now works on your behalf and is capable of obeying God. A new paradigm, a fresh start, a new identity. But you also get a call to holiness. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul says, This is the will of God, your sanctification. Have you ever wondered what God's will is for your life? It's written right on the page. That's what he's doing. He's making you practically righteous. Sanctification. But when he goes on to illustrate, he illustrates entirely in sexual sin. He says, and not in sexual immorality as the pagans. And he goes on from there. Okay, Write it in the notes. Take a look at it. But those two things go hand in hand. New identity in Christ, new calling in Christ. God gives you new life, and then he calls you to live it out in the image of God as you were designed to. A call to holiness. Okay, And so that's what happens in redemption. It's a new start. It's a fresh start. It's not just forgiveness, but the enablement onto righteousness. Creation, fall, redemption, but we're not done yet. We need one last category. We don't have time to turn there, but in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus again talks about marriage two more times. And in doing so, he looks beyond our life to the end of all things, and this is what he says. On one of the occasions, he's talking with the Sadducees, second half of Matthew chapter 22. And they come up with this hypothetical to show that a belief in an afterlife is incongruent with Moses' sexual ethic. And so they come up with this story of a man who married a woman and then died before he had kids, and his six brothers each took him as, as a wife. And so they go, in heaven, whose wife will she be? Right? That's the question. It's just a hypothetical. But this is what Jesus says. He says, you don't understand because in heaven... They will neither marry nor be given in marriage, but will be like the angels. He says sex in its design is temporary. He says that the state of the end of all things will not be marriage, but singleness. Now let me remind you, Christian church, because we often think it's the other way around. Singleness is the temporary state and marriage is the permanent state. Do not forget your vows till death do you part. Singleness is the permanent state of humanity. Marriage is the temporary one. But here's what's wild. Jesus says, when we get to it, no, no, no longer do we need sexuality. But then earlier in the chapter, this is what he says. He says, if you want to understand the kingdom of God, it's like a wedding. How can that be? There, one conversation after another. One, he says, no wedding to come. And the other, he says, if you want to understand it at all, you have to think in marriage. Here's what Jesus means, and this is why consummation matters. Marriage, sexuality, gender in its properly fulfilled way is a sign, but it's not the thing that it signifies. This is why Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 talks about marriage between a husband and wife, and at the end he quotes Genesis 2.24 just like the other places, and then he says, this is a great mystery, but I'm speaking of this verse and it pertains to Christ and his church. He doesn't say, you know what a good illustration of Jesus' relationship with us is? Human marriage. He says, you know what marriage was made for? Jesus and the church. It's different, isn't it? And this is why this matters, okay? Because a few months ago, my family and I took a trip to California and went to Disneyland. I'm sure you've all made the pilgrimage. 
And one of the exciting parts of that journey, right, is when you see the sign. The sign right there, welcome to Disneyland. But never once have any of you pulled over at the sign and set up camp and said, we're here, finally, this is it. Right, you drive past the sign and you get to the park. And the truth is, as exciting as it is to see that sign, if you get to the park and you miss the sign, you don't even think about it. Because you're at Disneyland, right? Listen, for those who will experience the fullness of God's design in our limited, finite, human, and fallen way, it will never live up to its purpose. It'll always be the shadow and not the thing that it signifies. And for those who never taste in this life God's design for sex and gender, they will not be removed from its reality and fulfillment in heaven. Okay, This is important for two reasons. One, because it stops us from making issues in sex and, sex and gender too ultimate, which the Bible calls idolatry. When we take created things and we make them divine things and they define if we have a good life or a bad life, a fulfilling life or an unfulfilling life, a righteous life or an unrighteous life, that's idolatry. They're just shadows that point to what's coming. But because they properly point to what's coming, it also makes them severely important and significant. Because again, what's the question for the human life? Do you rightly image God? Does your relationships reflect rightly the relationship that God desires to have with his people? Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. That's how we assemble the pieces. And when you do that, it changes everything about the way you handle your own sex and gender, it changes everything about the way you navigate the disappointments and difficulties of a fallen life and world. It changes everything about how you treat other people who sin differently than you. And it changes everything about the way that you view the good things in life and the expectations that come with them. And again, by design, at the heart of what it means to be human, at the heart of what it means to be male and female created in the image of God, is the heart of God himself and the relationships he desires to have with his people. In other words, rightly talking about sex and gender is severely evangelistic because it points all the way to the invitation God makes to all of humanity. Come, be my bride. Experience the relationship you were made for. Let's pray. Father, we are your children. Christ, you are our husband and we are your bride. We want to own up to, we want to recognize that sex and gender was created good, that it has a design, and that its purpose is ultimately not about us and our fulfillment, but about fulfilling our purpose in your image, about rightly representing who you are, about anticipating and expecting the the thing that is signified by the sign. I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to recalibrate our own lives around these things and that at the heart of our lives, at the center of our purpose, would be this gospel message that Christ has come to set things right and that he'll come again to fulfill all these things. Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.